ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Here on Signposts, as you know, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in as I have conversations with thinkers and leaders on a whole range of issues. And I'm, I'm often surprised where those conversations go because uh, we're always looking for what Walker Percy called uh, signposts in a strange land. And today I want to talk about a book that fascinated me uh, when I read it. And as I've mentioned before, I can tell uh, when a book has really engaged me based upon whether I read it really fast or really slowly. Either one of those can mean that a book has really engaged me. And this one I read very slowly, a lot of notes to myself, a lot of uh, underlining. And if anything, I think the book is more important now uh, than it was when it was released a few months ago. We saw the insurrection at the Capitol with images of the uh, what's being called the Q shaman uh, there, along with people waving Jesus saves signs. And uh, a lot of people are wondering, what's going on with religion in America? Uh, I included this book, Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World, on my top 10 books of 2020. And this is what I said at the time. Uh, Creed Bratton of The Office said, I've been a member of several cults, both as a follower and as a leader. You have more fun as a follower, but there's more money as a leader. Growing up in a 1980s-era Southern Baptist church, lots of training union, discipleship training, Wednesday night Bible study time, was spent on equipping us to talk to cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses or the Unification Church or Satanic Covens. And I remember thinking, Wonder if somewhere out there, there are other kids on metal folding chairs learning how to confront us, narrator, there were. And I doubt that very much of that goes on right now because most people are not concerned about their children becoming Hare Krishnas or, or some other, uh, what we would consider to be a cult, but instead that they would dwindle into secularism. And what uh, this book is doing is uh, showing us a more complicated picture, both of religion and of secularization uh, in American culture, to help you to understand why that young, spiritual, but not religious student might call herself a, a witch, or why that uh, young boy who gave up church for watching YouTube videos about Jungian ideas of masculinism, what why he's going in that direction, and, and what that means. And this book really lays out not just 
uh, an overview of where these new religious movements are, but also why. And that's why I'm really glad to have uh, with us today Tara Isabella Burton, who uh, received her doctorate in theology from Trinity College, Oxford in 2017. She's the author so far of two books, uh, the novel Social Creature, published by Doubleday, and this book, Strange Rights. And she has two more that are coming out. Um, another novel, The World Cannot Give, in 2022, and another work of nonfiction, self-made, curating our image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. I'm very interested to read that as well. And you've seen her writing, I'm sure, all over the place, New York Times, Atlantic, so forth. She's a columnist for Religion News Service and writes uh, everywhere. Tara, thanks so much for being with us today on Signposts. Uh, thank you so much for having me and for the extremely kind words. I'm delighted to be here. I was interested as I started reading your book uh, about the conversation about weddings and funerals, because I think you're exactly right that uh, even somebody who doesn't know how to pay attention to sociological data and so forth uh, can can see kind of an evolution going on in weddings and funerals. How, how, how do those uh, ceremonies show us sort of where America is with religion right now? Well, I think that um, one of the sort of interesting uh, transitions in how we think about ceremonies is that the, the weddings were kind of the first to go, in a sense, which is to say that the increasingly uh, more and more weddings are not held in traditional um, houses of worship or houses of worship is traditionally understood. Uh, you know, that was sort of followed a couple decades later by funerals becoming increasingly not so much uh, secular, but somehow hybrid. And there's a lot of um, reasons for this. There is, for example, uh, people who might be in an interfaith marriage, of course, or, or who's uh, lives sort of involve having a, a ceremony that's kind of hybrid. There are people who don't want religion in these ceremonies at all. Um, but I think that it, uh, there's a cultural trend at the heart of it that isn't just about religious affiliation or lack thereof, but a sense in which um, these major life ceremonies, weddings, funerals, uh, what have you, uh, should be individualized. They should reflect the personality of the person involved rather than being a kind of communal event with a set script. And so I think you know, the easy answer to say, well, fewer people are observant Christians, uh, and therefore they're going to have city hall weddings, slightly misses the point. Or, I mean, it's not that it's wrong, but I think that there's a cultural um, obsession with this idea of authenticity, that mm -hmm. these stages on life's way ought to be adapted to reflect who we are deep down, whether that means... Um, having uh, certain music played, certain words spoken, uh, a poem chosen with particular significance, rather than a kind of script to follow. A script to follow is seen as not just inauthentic, but, but distant somehow, uh, which I think speaks to the wider question, not just that we're kind of looking at secularism, but rather we're looking at a kind of fracturing and bespokeification of uh, spiritual and communal identity. You know, most people, when they think of uh, secularization, uh, think of it as this uh, evolution that's going in one direction from religion toward atheism. And you talk about in the book that in your perspective, both uh, someone like the new atheists, uh, back when that was uh, really popular uh, in terms of publishing, or kind of a Jerry Falwell figure, both of them kind of had the future wrong when they thought about secularism. What do you mean by that? 
So I think that there is sort of this vision, as you say, the kind of pessimistic and optimistic iterations thereof, that we're we're becoming secular, we're doing away with religion. And I don't think that's true. And certainly the numbers don't bear that out. Rather, I think what we're seeing is a kind of move from institutional or um, organized religion, what we might traditionally think of as religion, to a kind of fractured kaleidoscopic landscape where individuals are either creating their own religion or mixing and matching from different religious, spiritual, communal traditions um, bolstered by the internet. Now, I think one uh, piece of data that I always like to bring up that really illustrates this is that while it's true that about about a quarter of Americans today say they have no religious affiliation, um, that goes up to 36% among people born um, after, I believe it's 1981, um, however, maybe it's 85, um, 1985. But uh, at the same time, of these people who say, I am not religiously affiliated, 72% say they believe in a higher power. What's more is 17% Say they believe in, and I think the poll says it's it's the God of the Bible or the Judeo-Christian God. I forget quite how they put it, but clearly there are people. There are there are so many people whose sense of themselves is not religious, is not linked to a lack of interest in religion, of spiritual searching, and even in some cases, um, it's it's not linked to a lack of belief in uh, the Christian God as as is sort of traditionally understood. Would you think that the 17%, to go back to the funerals, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I have noticed the shift of uh, funerals from churches to funeral homes and from, say, Book of Common Prayer uh, kind of um, uh, funeral service adapted to other traditions as well, to, as you mentioned, this sort of authentic representation of the, of the person. Uh, but I've also noticed many people who have absolutely no uh, church affiliation at all, who inevitably are going to say the deceased is is in heaven now with Jesus and or the, or the person's an angel now or, or God decided uh, he needed someone else in heaven. You know, th- those sorts of kind of spiritual ideas that can be pulled out because they're useful. Is, is that where you think that this kind of Christian remix is, or is it genuinely kind of just a a cognitive belief that doesn't have an institutional framework? I mean, I think it's, it's something in between. I think the, there, there is a sort of great space in the middle um, that, that includes both people who might not identify as religious and people who kind of might tick Christian on a form um, that might subscribe to kind of a vague cultural Christianity or a sort of vague sense of there's a God, sure, and Jesus, sort of divine, maybe an important prophet, probably a good guy. We, 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 we like him, but there isn't a kind of robust set of um, doctrines or beliefs associated with that. And I think that in some cases, um, sort of adopting that language, um, in particular at a funeral, can be a sort of conciliatory gesture to to family or older family members who might want that said. Um, In my experience, I think that we are seeing a shift away from that kind of common language, that discourse, the kind of Christian adjacent language as a lingua franca uh, for much of America is, um, I would argue, receding, especially as it becomes less and less socially necessary or less and less uh, a kind of 
glue that holds people together. I mean, uh, 29% of Americans now say they want um, a secular, a completely secular funeral. And I imagine that as, um, as time goes on, as uh, the generations that are um, more likely to die in any given year uh, are, are no longer with us, there may be less and less uh, cause for people who may not uh, subscribe to Christianity, who may not believe uh, they may no longer feel like they have to kind of say it or use that that common language. It might become uh, irrelevant. And I think the fact that marriages are, of course, increasingly secular, which is something that, you know, you often maybe you do it for your family, but it's something done, enacted by the planners um, are are so much more secular, I think, just tells us where funerals are going to go. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that I can see uh pastors who often have very little function in terms of uh, weddings and funerals, those things are put together and executed by wedding planners and funeral directors um, almost entirely in many cases, unless there's a community that really asserts itself uh, in terms of that. You even said at one point, I found this really interesting, that in terms of American culture, stories uh, such as Star Wars and Harry Potter would hold us together in cultural memory right now more than, say, uh, the suffering of Job? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what, what's so fascinating to me is um, it is quite likely if you sort of look at the American population sort of on uh, how the American population does on like biblical literacy polls, that more um, more Americans know the names of the Harry Potter houses than, than they do the four Gospels. Certainly than Job. Uh, Job, not a lot of Americans know about Job, at least according to some of the uh, Pew research. And I think that that, you know, these cultural properties, whether it's talking about chaotic good and lawful evil and Dungeons and Dragons, whether it's talking about the Hogwarts houses and personality traits, um, it's not that people believe it in some sort of metaphysical way, but this is the language that we use to talk about um, good and evil, to talk about kinds of people. Um, it, the story unites us not because we think that it literally happened, but because this is sort of, these are the useful shorthands. The, this is the, the, the repository of stories that uh, we use to communicate sort of metaphysical adjacent ideas um, to one another. And so I'm not saying we're going to see uh, tons of Harry Potter themed weddings, but I think it's telling that there have been quite a few that it's a pretty sort of established thing to do to to talk about Star Wars or Harry Potter as a kind of moral universe against which and through which one might define oneself. Well, what what really stood out to me when I, I stopped and thought about uh, that point is to say there was this, especially starting in the maybe the late 1970s, 1980s, Within evangelicalism, a, a very strong market-driven movement that said, we can't really expect biblical literacy. We don't want to talk about sort of uh, deep biblical narratives in church because we want to be able to reach unchurched people who don't know that. And so hymns are rewritten to take out, here I raise mine Ebenezer. You know, nobody knows what Ebenezer is and so forth. Uh, but as I thought about it, uh, people can learn the Harry Potter houses. And, and, and part of what people are actually drawn to um, in this is they are drawn to the world that is uh, articulated there, in those cases, a fictional uh, world. And it sort of um, demonstrates 
that the kind of uh, contentless articulation of Christianity is kind of kicking the kicking the legs out from under it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that what's so striking is that the kind of idea, and I think I, I can draw parallels too to like similar movements within the mainline Protestant tradition of, of making you know Christianity accessible in a certain way does tend to remove its its reason for existing. I think once you start as um, once you start treating church, treating faith like something that's filling a need, something that should be accessible, something that should be desirable, it is a market product, then suddenly it is competing with other market products. That is the sphere in which, you know, it, it stands or falls. And I think what that does is, is reduce sort of a strange and, and you know, a, a strange faith with, with jagged edges that, that challenges us in a certain way. And kind of demands that it compete with Harry Potter in terms of, you know, whether it gets your heart rate up in a certain way. And while I do, of course, uh, think that the uh, gospel narratives are already more engaging as is, I think that presenting it as how are we going going to, you know, muscle in on the market share of narrative hunger risks um, moving faith away from or from what it what it really is, what it really can do, which is challenge our very desire to be entertained and satisfied in such a worldly way. You uh, reflected on the work of Peter Berger, whose work I appreciate greatly, on uh, meaning, community, and ritual uh, being essential to uh, religious identity. And I think that's right. And I've often seen uh, one or two of those emphasized to the exclusion of, of a third uh, in a way that, that dissipates whatever the religious organization is ultimately. But what was interesting to me is that when you started getting to the concrete of how this is showing up, uh, you're not talking primarily about a sort of religious organizations that someone might have thought of in a previous era, Jehovah's Witnesses or Hare Krishnas or or even uh, the New Age movement uh, of the early 80s. Instead, you're talking about things like wellness culture. And, uh, and uh, even when you're talking about witchcraft, you're not talking about the sort of thing that I was warned about as a kid in an evangelical church of sort of satanic covens gathering around to do uh, crazy things. You're, you're talking about essentially uh, a mixing together and a cobbling together of various kinds of ideas. Why do you think that? Do you think that uh, mobility is a big factor in in this, in the way that we, especially when it comes to wellness culture, the, the idea of uh, maybe one of the reasons that we have to emphasize self-care is because we're often in places where there is no one else to care for us. We're not around parents and uh, uncles and aunts and others. Absolutely. I think that sort of even more broadly, the the communal breakdown that we have sort of at the level of family, family structures, communities, communities taking care of one another. I think the more isolated a person is from those traditional uh, familial and institutional uh, forms of support the more kind of cobbling together both self-care and a kind of makeshift community, um, whether it be of friends or fellow fans, 
uh, becomes all the more important. And I think in particular, um, the Internet, both in the ways in which um, it's transformed uh, how we live offline, but also in terms of the way in which um, we kind of make our make jobs, make friends, find romantic partners through this this extremely vast network that makes uh, geographical presence all but irrelevant, um, intensifies this kind of isolation we have. It's a it's you know it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, it's true we can create and develop and foster a community um, with people who might we might never have met in real life. At the same time, I think one of the reasons that we have to do this is an increasingly atomized, increasingly individualistic society where we don't have the kind of bonds or vision of a common good that might make us look a little closer to home for a community to sustain us. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. In your discussion of of civil religions, I I was uh, actually right before uh, you and I uh, got together today, I was looking at three different things uh, that came in. Uh, One of those things is the discussion going on in the United States Congress about QAnon, Um, And uh, that's a discussion that I'm having every single day because pastors and Christians are saying to me, what do I do when I have family members who are caught up in this? Uh, And then I had an email uh, from someone who's a a professor at a a school who says every, uh, I'm really being penalized because I'm supposed to say it every conversation to give my pronouns uh, immediately. And it has become, everyone's looking to see if you're not giving your pronouns and, and there's consequences for it. And then uh, saw an image of Mars, uh, of the landscape of Mars that had been posted on Twitter and Elon Musk had responded to it with destiny. And uh, as, I, as I thought about it just now, those really encapsulate kind of expressions of 
all of the manifestations of civil religions that you talk about in this book, sort of social justice, progressivism, techno-utopianism, and then this kind of blood and soil, white identity politics sort of thing that we see emerging with such force right now as well. Do you think that these civil religions kind of coming so different from, and I'm somebody who rejects the civil religion of a generic in God we trust because I'm I'm explicitly uh, theologically objecting to it as a Christian. But these civil religions, it seems to me, are not compatible with one another and aren't even uh, capable of doing what civil religion is supposed to do, which is to hold people together. Are, are we just headed toward a fracturing that can't be put back together? Absolutely. I mean, I'm 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 not optimistic, and I think I mean I, I think that each of these um, civil civil religions. Um, I don't necessarily equate the three of them. I think each of them is in their way reacting to kind of different elements of the culture. And I think that that two things are true. One is that, um, and this is particularly true both of sort of the social justice movement um, and in uh, not to equate them, but in this one respect, I, I, I will, the, the kind of reactionary uh, far right kind of identity politics is a, a kind of massive distrust of and dissatisfaction with um, the kind of vaguely neoliberal establishment and a kind of vision of capitalist atomization, uh, to put it a bit reductionistically, that particularly in uh, the last few decades has kind of taken hold of American life. And I think the techno-utopians are a bit different. I think they want to sort of take a a vision of kind of atomization and self-hacking and kind of capitalist self-betterment to the extreme. But I think you have in on the part of um, these, these other two, two movements, a real sense that the world isn't enough the way it is. The world is broken. And, you know, this individualistic way in which we could, we've been living is somehow um, insufficient. It is unjust. And what troubles me particularly about the sort of QAnon iteration of this is that simultaneously it's sort of reacting to, let's say, the insufficiencies of liberalism. And yet there's a kind of total nihilism in the way in which it takes basically the aesthetics of action movies of like Bruce Willis and Die Hard and Mad Max and these sort of apocalyptic visions and basically says, you know, come along for the ride, post on Instagram, go down the Q rabbit hole, and suddenly you're going to be in this, you know, Hollywood blockbuster. Don't you hate the modern world? Isn't it sort of alienating to you in these various ways? And yet embrace this nihilism, this vision of coming violence as in a, essentially a form of entertainment. Um, mm. And so I think that, that that double motion, both a, a dissatisfaction with the world that's cured by a kind of slightly sacralized vision of basically the kind of violence you'd see in an action movie is, yeah. um, is, is troubling to me. Well, and you point out in the book, and I, I thought it was, I stopped and, and thought to myself, this is exactly right. Because you said there's a kind of um, valorization of authority. So it's, it's an authoritarian movement that rejects authority. 
and <laughs> wants to, to, as you put it, tear down the cathedral. And I thought to myself, that's exactly right, because in, in every iteration of this I've ever seen, whether it's happening in a church or wherever it's happening, there's a, there's a sense of ridicule of existing authority and norms and structures and wanting to tear them down. And of course, we saw that at the insurrection where you had many of the same people who would have been saying blue lives matter, support police, attacking police, and and in in one case, beating a police officer to death. Uh, How can how can authority, genuine authority in the sort of Robert Nisbet sense of rather than coercion, how can that be reasserted in a, in a world like that? I mean, I think, and perhaps this is the one area where I'm idealistic, if not optimistic, that a kind of a genuine appeal to a genuine vision of a moral good, a common good. I think that, that the kind of a certain wishy-washy centrism that doesn't offend anybody, that makes no robust claims, no moral claims about uh, what the world demands of us, what what a common good demands of us. I think that that will be ineffective. I think it. it I think that people do have a sense that, you know, and maybe it is because we hunger for something interesting and aesthetics, or, or maybe because we do have a genuine moral hunger that just a kind of technocratic liberalism that doesn't robustly demand a common good is is insufficient and i think the the way to to combat that is is for and whether it's it's a politician in office or a, a public leader to say there is such a thing as good and evil there is such a thing as actions we are called to do whether it is is, is you know loving our neighbor or caring for the poor and i think taking a kind of strong stance rather than an anodyne one is much more likely to captivate and win the trust of people who are looking for not necessarily a leader, but a vision of how the world ought to be and a kind of moral certainty and seriousness that I think is all too often lacking from our public discourse. At the end of the book, you talked about how uh, Generation Z particularly is a turning not just away from institutional religion, but particularly against uh, evangelical Christianity. Those numbers are uh, stark for evangelicals in ways that I think some of my fellow evangelicals aren't seeing. Why is that the case? Why is evangelicalism not uh, resonating with Generation Z? I have some theories, but I'm curious as to what you think. Sure. So I think I want to sort of specify that I'm talking specifically about white evangelicalism here. Um, but say that particularly uh, the white evangelical establishments uh, support, uh, I mean, this was certainly, this certainly predated Trump, but I think um, its support of Trump has been, I would argue, extremely morally compromising. I think it's very difficult to um, kind of hold on to an anti-worldly and at times perhaps, you know, unpopular, unfashionable vision of um, religious um, demands and apply those when it comes to sort of particular social issues that are more divisive. And then when it comes to someone like Trump to throw all that out the window, I think the the hypocrisy of that has, um, I think, intensified an existing alienation. And I think, too, um, on questions of, of race, um, that the church has been uh, not, or the 
the community rather, let's say, has been been not great. And I think particularly as well, a uh, question of um, of sexuality. I mean, I think it's it's telling that queer Americans in particular um, are almost twice as likely to identify as religiously unaffiliated as the average population. Um, 46% of, um, of queer Christians are, don't identify with, with any religion. Um, and it means that many, many Americans who have uh, perhaps want to be part of a religious, perhaps were, you know, grew up Christian, have left their, their churches and their communities behind. And I think a, a, re- a real discussion needs to be had on how do you minister to people? How do you make sure that all are welcome in church? And those are, those are I mean, I, I don't have a prescription, for it, but those are certainly questions that I think uh, one would need to answer if one wanted uh, evangelical Christianity, but I think Christianity more broadly to um, be somewhere that young people go. Hmm. So in your view, and I asked Philip Jenkins this uh, not long ago, uh, just imagine for me an evangelical Christian church in, say, Nashville, Tennessee, in the year 2051. Uh, what, in your view, would be the same and, and what would be different? I think that there's, there's sort of two demographic shifts. And I think one is, of course, that uh, the evangelical community that exists is getting um, more more racially diverse. So I think we would see a church that looked a little different. That said, I um I'm not sure that it would be as as big. I think that the the, the losses we are seeing are so striking among younger Americans in particular that we may see a kind of older church the same way when I was at Oxford there I would go to a church and it was, you know, five um women in their eighties and, and me at this uh, sort of you know the local uh Church of England church on my street. And I, I do wonder whether, perhaps not that extreme, but we will see um, both a more diverse and a much, much older evangelical church as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Tara Isabella Burton, for being here. Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World is the book. And uh, as I said, for those of you who are evangelical Christians, uh, there are going to be uh, many points in this book that you're not going to agree with the perspective of the author. Uh, many points maybe in this conversation uh, where you wouldn't agree with the perspective of the author, but you're you're going to, uh, it's going to benefit you to uh, confront those perspectives and to think through those perspectives uh, because there's a, there's a different reality uh, out there in our mission field than what some of us uh, think there is. And we, we ought to take that into account. So thank you, Tara, for being with us today on Signpost. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation so much. Well, that was an interesting uh, conversation. I, I'm reflecting now on the aspects of what uh, she is saying that I agree with and the aspects that I disagree with. Uh, her on, but but both of them, I think, are kind of illuminating uh, for us to look at where we are right now. I, I don't agree with her on the sexuality piece, that the way that uh, Christianity should go forward is by, I'm not sure how she, if she would put it this way, of essentially throwing overboard uh, aspects of Christian sexual morality that have been uh, not only part of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years, but that are uh, explicitly uh, revealed in Scripture. I don't think we have the authority to do that. I think that we have to, uh, when we're asked to choose between Jesus and our mission field, we choose Jesus. 
Um, but we listen to our mission field uh, as to what they hear us saying. Sometimes what our mission field is going to hear us saying are things that are accurate um, about Jesus or about the Bible. And they're going to say, as many people did in the New Testament, this is a hard saying, I can't accept it. And they're going to walk away like the rich young ruler. Sometimes, though, the reason that they don't uh, listen to us when it comes to Jesus is not that they don't believe what it is that we're teaching, but because they don't think we believe what it is that we're teaching. And that's why I think that uh, holding to a robust and orthodox Christian sexual ethic along with a Christian ethic of uh, everything that's revealed in Scripture and a Christian gospel that uh, allows for and and gives us forgiveness of sins and, and a way to be reconciled to God. I think all of those things are necessary because the gospel didn't emerge in a place where I think some people sometimes assume this, and I'm not saying that she, that Professor Burton does, but I think that some people assume that uh, Christianity emerged in a time where a Christian uh, sexual moral ethic was assumed and Christianity assumed it too. That wasn't the case. Greco-Roman world uh, had a very different understanding of sexual morality at every point. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you see so much uh, given to uh, talk about sexual morality, about uh, temple prostitution, about husbands loving their wives and wives loving their husbands, about marital fidelity, about how uh, from the beginning God created them to be male and female. You see all those things so, so often explicated in the New Testament because they were not assumed. And because what Jesus is calling everyone to do is to take up a cross and follow him. And often that is going to be very difficult. And so I think while I agree with Professor Burton on the, on the ways that Christianity compromises its witness by, for instance, tying itself to political power or covering over sexual abuse and sexual assault. I think she's right on, on those aspects of it. Um, but I don't think she's right on the morality piece because, uh, or actually because of a point that she made. We can't make personal authenticity the driver of meaning, ritual, and community. In order to call people to meaning, ritual, and community, uh, we have to have something transcendent. And people can read texts. They understand and know what these texts are, are saying. And so we have to be uh, truthful and compassionate. Uh, speaking with the authority of Christ, but speaking with the authority of Christ, of a Christ who isn't shocked by the fact that the world is filled with sinners, us included, uh, and, and who isn't uh, somehow uh, shocked by the fact that he's offering his blood as a propitiation for sins, including those sins, and that he gives the Holy Spirit uh, to enable people to be able to fight the spiritual warfare that it takes uh, to fight to be faithful to uh, the commands of Jesus, including in the sexual arena. So I think the, the the sexuality piece of it, that's a first century problem, not a 21st century problem. And I don't think that we uh, get out of that problem by trying to recreate uh, what the morality should be. Instead, I think we listen to what the scripture says. We submit ourselves to what the scripture says. We understand why people disagree with us. We speak to them persuasively with a word from God. And we seek to model for the rest of the world what it means to be repentant uh, sinners who are, are not putting ourselves up as judge over the world, but are seeking ourselves 
to be found faithful before the Lord Jesus, and we can only do that with the Spirit. I think that's uh, that's the way that we do it. So she and I might disagree on that part of it, and uh, you know I think we do. But I think her larger point about how Christianity is going to be out of step at that point is important for us to know. Important for us to know. We can't just assume shorthand for people on the outside, and to help us to know that hypocrisy uh, in the Christian community is deadly uh, to our witness. I think that uh, I think that is true because the the personal authentic authenticity as driver is not just happening in the world. It's happening in the church too. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you listen. And uh, also check out the other podcasts, the Russell Moore podcast there. It helps us if you leave a review. That that helps for people to find the show. If you're listening on a smartphone, Tap the cover art and you'll find show notes with some resources for you, including about this book that we talked about today. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.